I start on whatever day it was at Castle Wine in Green Park and I arrive correctly in suits because we all wore suits and ties those days and I get given a blue toolbox and I, and I say to Jeff, what's this? He said, no, it's your merchandising kit. So I said, no, I'm really confused. So I open it, there's a staple gun and a cutter, Artline 70 cookies. And it was at that point I realized, oh, my socks, I've made a massive mistake. Today I'm joined by Greg Holtman, CEO of Flair Beverages, one of the oldest beer importers in South Africa. Greg started importing Vintuk beer around 1987 and worked with the Nambru brands for more than 20 years before they ended up with Brandhaus. Greg now imports Erdinger, Paulana, Bitburger and Royal Dutch beers. Listen out for this interesting part of South African beer history. My name is Holger Meyer and this is Beer World. Holger, I think it began it began um, in uh, 19, I think it was 1987, 88. I was working for the then Castle Wine, proud, a proud South African company, which is which is really sad. Another one bites the dust. Eh? Really sad to see. And um, um, it's actually quite a, an amazing story. And then it shoots myself in the foot like four times. But the, but that's just how it is. So um, I was I was playing a little bit of rugby and 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 um, I kept arriving late for the games. And my coach, a chap by the name of Jeff Salt, said to me, "You know what do you do?" I said, "I work for a living. Yeah, I work for Woolworths. I'm on, on the floor as as management. I'm trying to climb my way up the Woolworths ladder." So he said, "But." what do you do? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in retail management. Uh, I'm a floor manager and I'd like to get into merchandising. <laughs> so Jeff says to me, but we've got a merchandising job opening at Castle Wine. And I'd never heard of Castle Wine before. I said, but who's Castle Wine? So he says Rembrandt and all this stuff. And I think, my word, that's actually a big company. I disappear. I go do a little bit of homework on it. And I understand, wow, there's some like seriously big brands like Cliptriff and Viceroy and Silicask and the whole, the back all the wine range and uh, Fleur de Cup and gee whiskers. So I go for an official interview and 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 <laughs> and I floor them with that magnificence about turnover per meter and pop per cube and proportionate layout and display. And I can see these oaks don't know what I'm talking about. I think, man, I'm onto a good thing here. I'm going to tell them about merchandise, etc. So. Merchandising in Woolworths terms means a head office job. You don't work six and a half days a week. And you, you decide what style of fashion, which colors, which sizes go into which stores. It's actually quite an interesting um, uh, setup. So lo and behold, I get a call from Jeff. Like a day later, says, no, you've got the job. And here's the starting salary. And you get a car. And, and then the car was nice. I hadn't had a car at Woolworths. I had to take a slight knock-in salary, but it really was slight. But I've got an expense account, and I've got a driver. And, man, I, I, I hand in my notice, and I do the, uh, the exit interviews. And uh, I start on whatever day it was at Castle Wine in Green Park, and I arrive correctly in suits because we all wore suits and ties those days. And I get given a blue toolbox. And I, and I say to Jeff, what's this? He said, no, it's your merchandising kit. So I said, no, I'm really confused. So I open it. There's a staple gun and a cutter. <laughs> Artline 70 cookies. And it was at that point I realized, oh, my socks, I've made a massive mistake. Anyway, it was a great mistake. And um, 
you know, I, I worked with, with, with in industry legends like Colin Blows and, and Jeff Salt and Harry, Harry Lubenstein, um, uh, Ronnie Zeman, you know, um, uh, Trevor Kidd. I mean, yes, here was this newbie. I was dark green behind the ears, man. And, and so that, that, that's how I got into the licky industry, actually, <laughs> completely public. So, so I, was, I was working uh, at the industry at the time, um, and uh, um, I got approached by the then Southwest Breweries, you know, and said, don't you want to come and work for us? And I was very quick to say, listen, hold on. I've, I, made, I made this mistake once in my life. I'm not going to leave an industry giant to go to you guys. You know, you guys really are nowhere. And um, the, the then marketing or sales director, Ernst Ender, then, you know, I had a, had a let's call it a, a chat to him, Clanmont. He's still to this day has a place in Clanmont. And, um, you know, he said to me, but resolution, I think it's 435 is coming through and, and Southwest Africa is going to become independent. We're going to become Namibia. And we believe it politically astute not to own um, operations in an apartheid regime country like South Africa. Therefore, we will have a management buyout. Now, my whole life I've dreamt of, um, you know, working for myself um doing various side hustles back in the day you know making a blasted barbecue sauce for for, for brys and and selling it to oaks in the liquor industry with the kind of knowledge of the boys involved so i thought you know going going into it and myself and terry could see it then i started working for terry um as as he's called it sales rep and about a year and a little bit later we sat down with Nambrew, had the negotiation, and bought out Vintage Beer Cape Town, or Vintage Beer. Actually, the company was called Vintage Beer Cape Town, even though we, we were the, the whole the old Cape province, so East London. And it, but in the very early days, all we did was literally was Cape Town, you know, and um, understanding the draft market and and the little dumpy bottle with that white label and the, the kind of green writing on it. And those early days, if I wanted to have 20 posters, I'd have to write a four-page proposal to Ernst explaining to him what I want to do with 20 posters. Those oaks were beyond tight, I promise you. And, um, you know, my first mission when I started the company, I had a, a yellow dust cloth. And, and my mission was no one's going to buy a case of beer or a six-pack with dust on it. And that literally was, that literally was the, uh, my, my main job was to get into the trade and dust off the beer and try and lift it to where people could see it, you know. And and we started, I think, I'm speaking under correction, Olga, but we were like doing 700 hectolitre for a year, you know, something 700, 800 hectolitre for the year. All right, so a short while into the business, um, Terry and I had different philosophies and visions for the company, you know. And, uh, you know, it was kind of, well, I'm leaving. And he said, well, if you're leaving, I'm leaving. And I said, well, in that case, I'll make you an offer, which, which he accepted. Um, and then I took over the company, you know, about three months after its inception and, and, and bought two, two real rags and frantically, you know, started <laughs> dusting off beer. <laughs> Land sakes. And, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it was really interesting in those days, Holger, you know, bank managers, the then old Trust Bank, I was banking with Trust Bank, and they had my surety, that of my wife, my dogs, they had my underpants, they had everything. 
and, and, and in fact, the manager, a chap by the name of Wood Becker, awesome guy, he, he, he gave me three overdrafts because I couldn't survive on one. And if he had to give me a bigger overdraft, he'd have to go to head office and he knew they were going to disprove it. So he literally backed me, you know, and, and, and one day I will never forget this. <laughs> he phones me in a panic. He says, Engelsman, I'm going to get a head office inspection. Can't you please just close down one of the overdrafts? Yes, and I had like 87 rand petty cash which I banked. He phoned me, he said, man, stop playing games with me. My job's on the line. And I then, um, I, I then went to Mike Kavinsky of Aroma. They were still quite big players. And um, I remember Mike used to talk financial stuff to me, which was like so far over my head, you know. But every now and then I'd nod, like pretend I'm ex- I understand what I'm doing. So I had a meeting with Mike and I said, Mike, listen, I'm, this is the situation. So, well, you know what? If you give me a discount, I'll pay you earlier, which, which I did. I gave him a little discount and, and he paid me earlier and I killed the overdraft. And, and actually, you know, from there onwards, we flourished. So I kind of owe Mike a big one. Um, he, he's, he's, he did he did help myself and put out of the out of the out of the drain there and uh, yeah it's, and you know and that's how we started you know Holger I, I bought a, a Lansing Dagnall forklift the electric thing from Nambrew all it had was an hour's worth of life in the battery so I'd, I'd load the truck at night when I came back from doing my rounds um, uh, uh, Maria Rasmus was my call it general manager doing everything and she had put up okay the load sheets who's going where in what truck and i'd come back at night and load the beer with this lancing bagnell and hope like hell i could get it all <laughs> in an hour. Uh, so those were those are great days i wouldn't swap them for anything i never knew if i was going to be in business from one month to the next but you know we made it and and the brand started getting a bit of traction you know, the the, the, the the urban legend of Brian Apsker bought the non-hangover beer started growing. People started um, believing it. And 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 about six, seven years uh, into the business, the traction was there and we were we were probably doing about fifteen, eighteen thousand hectoliter. And I was standing in a in a bar, I will never forget this, in in, in just off uh, Green Market Square in Cape Town. There used to be a lovely little outlet there called the Tudor Inn. German run. Uh, the owner was Martin Diebold, and um, I was having a chat to Martin and a, and, a, and a standing there with no drink because I still had to work. And um, this complete stranger came up next to me and, and, and he ordered a vintage draft. And I thought, oh, that's awesome, you know. You you get a lack of feeling when that happens, you know. And um, I, I, the guy saw me looking at the beer and, and he turned around to me and said, you know what, you should drink this beer because it doesn't give you a bubble us. And that. That rumor kind of came back, you know, 360. And I must tell you, I thought, you know what, bugger that. I'm actually going to have a beer. You know, those days we, we did that. We kind of had three or four beers and drove home. So had a couple of beers and, and, and drove home. And um, it was just awesome that, that all that hard work and all the, you know, the messages that uh, myself and the Red Force and whoever else, you know, um, punted out there all the time, you know, came came 360. And, and you know, the company just grew, you know, we, we grew and grew and grew until I think when uh, the, the then the now defunct brand house took over, we were at 197,000 hectoliter, you know, which is which is actually a hell of a journey, you know, we, we, we took it from that 800, it took us 19 or 20 years. And it's just, for me, it was very sad about how the company ended, 
you know, that was never meant to be a brand house. It was always meant to be a vintage beer, South Africa. And there were grandiose plans, which Pete Hoyer will, will know of. He was involved in them. Um, but, yeah, you know, um, business politics, I think, is far stronger than, than um, I suppose, personal relationships. And, um, yeah, they took the call to go with Bex and then Guinness anyway had to buy them out. So I suppose from that perspective, they did well. They, they made good money. But, yeah, you know, now um, that dream is done. It's no more. And, and, and yeah, you know, we, we kind of like two junkyard dogs growled at each other and we, we ended up doing the walls and wheels for the Hanneken side of the brand house contract. Um, and then uh, those guys wanted to buy, exit the contract early and there was another fight. And out of that fight came, play, came um, well, Flair Beverages was that. And then, um, uh, sure, then a very painful experience, the NMK experience. You know, um, my ex-Namibian Breeze colleagues, Andrea Herman and, and Rob Bender and Pete Hoyer had actually kind of bought the company. And uh, one, of the, one of the Gilby's guys, I think it was Poncho Stein, was supposed to run Cape Town and he pulled out at the last moment. And then they approached me and said, would I be interested? And the first meeting I attended with the guys as, as a consultant, because I was still negotiating with, um, with Brandhouse, turned out to be with C&C, who were doing um, Frangelica and Tullamore Dew. And the guy said to us, okay, we're taking the contract away from you. And they went like a whole chunk of the business out the door. And they got up and left. And we sat and looked at each other. And then we did the deal, you know, with uh, KWB, with uh, old uh, uh, Dr. Barnard. Awesome guy. Absolute scholar and a gentleman. What a pleasure to do business with that guy. He, he had a very strong ethical and moral compass. Good guy to work with. Um, and then uh, KWV bought half of NMK with the intent of putting all their stuff as a route to market instead of being, you know, spread all over to everyone. But then somehow something happened, which I don't know, and he took a very early retirement to be replaced by Chase uh, Loker, who was a bit of a henchman. He had a very different opinion, very different, uh, uh, very different um, approach to the business. And uh, after a short period of time, we parted ways, and, and, and the offer was, yeah, I learned something. Uh, we had a Texas auction, which I didn't know, what's a Texas auction? And they said, well, we'll put a price for your 50%, and you put a price for, and whoever's the bigger price buys it out. So I, I thought this was quite a dangerous game to play. I mean, wow, you know, I mean, we're playing for big stakes here. Anyway, long story short, um, they wanted to pay us X for our 50%, but were only prepared to give us X minus for our, you know. So it just didn't make sense. Uh, and then we, um, we took the company back, and that was 2008. <laughs> great, great timing. I mean, so we, we really went from one storm into an absolute perfect storm. And, and uh, we went to the bank and said, look, we now need to increase our overdraft because we don't have our big partner and they said we're a bank we don't lend money and the inevitable liquidation followed i still to this day maintain that company should never have gone down you know it was a great company had awesome brands and there i was myself pete hoyer um 
a lot of the NMK stock was sitting in my warehouse in a bond store that I had. And um, Pete said to me, what are we going to do? I said, no, nah, Pete, I've had enough. I'm, I'm done. This, this is a very, very, very incredibly painful experience, both financially and emotionally. And um, I'm done. And he said, no, 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 don't do that. Let's, let's start out of the ashes and, and we, we build up. You do Cape Town. And, I, and, and we, anyway. That, that's what we did, and and Erdinger, and then Craig McKenzie got involved. That's I forget that Craig actually said, "No, guys, let's." It was Craig, it wasn't Peter? It was Craig. Craig said, "Let's." He'll run Joburg, Pete runs Durban, and um, I run Cape Town, which we duly did. And then Erdinger came to me and said, "You know, don't you want to take on the brands?" And we said, "Yes." Um, and then the brands were imported into Craig, uh, and then. As, as it happens, we kind of, I think, uh, all agreed to separate out of that uh, loose uh, arrangement and go our separate ways. So we started port- importing Erdinger directly and supplying Pete with some of the stuff. And then Hilton uh, took over from Peter and Peter retired. And I think Hilton formed um, Beverage something. Beverage Emporium. Beverage Emporium. And I'm really chuffed. I think he's doing very well. He's a smart guy. Hilton's a good operator. He knows what he's doing. He's been on the floor. You know, he's he's sold. He's done everything. So I'm no doubt that he will go from strength to strength, which is awesome. And, um, you know, we, we, we went our own way. We started up uh, Joburg. And then we, we went into Durban. And then we went into Durban again. <laughs> and now we, we're back in Durban again. And... Uh, in fact, we've just appointed Martin Princeton as a director of the company. He's done a sterling job for us in, 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 in Joburg. And uh, yeah, and here we end up again mainly in a beer portfolio with uh, Erdinger, Polana, Bitburger, um, Royal Dutch. And yeah, and it's not as fun as it, as much fun as it used to be. You know, I think unfortunately a lot of margin has gone out of business. I think when. Um, when all the independent mama papa stores disappeared from the liquor store from the liquor scene, um, your shop checkers and pick and pay and those boys, they just said, Thanks, we'll have it. And it, it's very difficult to do to business and the big boys use those retailers as kind of a barrier to entry. And the margin is gone, you know, because you've got to pay rebates and if you're in the central warehouse, you've got to pay the central warehousing and so it's it's still fun, but it's not as much fun as it used to be, Holger, back in the days when, when you were selling gazillions of Bavaria up in <laughs> Cape. No, it's just not that much fun anymore. Yeah. What was it like when, when you started? Were there, uh, in those days, were there already a lot of Namibians in, in Cape Town? or? No, Holger, it, it was, um, you know, I think University of Stellenbosch probably had the highest concentration of Namibians and there was probably anywhere between a, maybe a 500 or a 1,000 Namibian students. So clearly Stellenbosch was a bit of a, a, of a lighthouse for us. Um, but I, I do genuinely think that um, what, what helped was it was great quality beer. And yeah. on top of that, you know, there was really only one other beer in the market. And, and that was SA something. I can't remember the name. SA, SA Brothers, SA Brewery, something <laughs> like that. Olsen's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, they, you know, <laughs> they had 99.9% of the market, you know. And yeah. um, I think we had 0.0001. 
and and slowly but surely, slowly but surely, you know, the yellow dust cloth, dust dust cloth, and um, trying to speak to guys like Darren Swirsky, who who you know, um, he said to me, but Greg, you know, I, I sell like so many beers, and and Mike Kavinsky, uh, those boys, and eventually I said to Mike one day, but you know, Mike, you're selling so many cases of Vintage, um <laughs> so many cases of of SAB. And you're making so little money, you know, it's a commodity. If you sell 10 cases of Vintuk at the margin you're selling it at, you know, you have to sell like 112 cases of SAB to be to bank the same amount of money. Now, Mike being a shop guy, he quickly picked that up. And, um, you know, uh, from there, it, 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 he, he kind of passed on, you know, give these guys a little bit of love. And, and um, Rebel, Rebel Holdings, which was Gilbert's at the time, uh, an, an absolute legend down here. I've lost complete contact with him. Steve Black was running Somerset West, also a German kind of orientated community town. And um, um, one Christmas, I, I snorkeled Steve's cup to take in a 34 pallets of vintage lager. Obviously, he got he got <laughs> the best. And, and, and about a, an hour after the truck had stopped, I get a frantic call from his um, his area manager. Piet and Piet phones me and says, Here, Engelsman, what have you done? So the only thing I could say to keep the beer in, I said, anything that's not sold by the 24th of December, I'll take back. Well, I tell you what, by the 20th of December, they were placing another order. Wow. So, you know, what I basically did, SAB had no space to put in, to put in beer. So... (laughs) So if you wanted a case of beer, and Rebel Somerset West was a big store. It was like a mega store in those days. If you wanted a beer, you had a vintage lager. And, of course, um, um, old, old, old Steve Black was a big advocate. So, you know, he just talked it up to anyone and everyone. And in those days, if your bottle store manager said it's a great beer, then you believed him. You know? So those days, bottle store managers could still un- tell you the difference between a Pinotage and a Merlot and a Cab and a lager and a Pilsner and a you know, a, a stout and a chocolate stout and a triple and a double and a, a blonde, you know. But today, un- unfortunately, those those guys are gone. They're lost to the trade and that knowledge has gone with them. So we deal with the big boys and, and the, the fun and the fun of the little guys are gone, you know. Yeah. It's just not there. So Cape Town to me always seemed like it was very well organized and there were there were groups controlling the, the market. Who were the big players? So it was Rebel, it was with Darren Swirsky. Aroma. Aroma. Aroma with with Mike Kavinsky, um, and then and then um, well no it wasn't Darren with Rebel it was Rob Naismith with Rebel and then um, Darren and uh, Brian McIntyre and a few of the boys broke away they were working for Joey and Sam Burke at the Dropping Group which was another very big player those guys broke away and bought um, the Picardi Group from Jan Picard. And I will never forget the headlines. I think it's still up in Darren's office. Black day for drop-in. And, yeah, I mean, you don't cross Sam Burke. You know, he was not the easiest of Oaks to deal with. In fact, he made nails look weak. Um, (laughs) And they broke away and they formed uh, Picardi, which then went on to buy out Rebel as well. And then they listed... um, the main Canadian there, I can see his face in front of me. I'm getting old, old. I forget his name. Jock Kemp, Kempen. He then listed the Rebhold Group, um, and they they listed. Then they delisted years later. But yeah, they they 
and still to this day they're a they're a they're a force they're a big force but their business has changed you know, and, the, and they've changed with it they they understood that you either have to be massive destination stores like Hillcrest Tops, that's a destination store, or like an ultra um, Greenpoint, it's a destination store, or you've got to be tremendously convenient, which are your local tops, you know. And and w- so what they did is they're supplying the, the majority of the market and, and doing well at it. So, you know, I'm glad to see they're still around us in Independent, but all the other boys, the drop-ins have gone, um, the, 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 the Diamonds, Mike and, and Peter Sternberg have gone, they they got taken up by uh, fruit and veg, um, so yeah, aroma is long gone. I think Mike keeps kept one or two aroma stores um, to supply his his, rest, his son's restaurants, um, but they all gone now. You know the the independents now really are the tops um, because at least those guys can still take a decision and list a certain amount of what they want to list. They don't have to wait for head office approval. Now, for the rest of it, it's all gone into pick and pay and top out checkers. And, and, and of course, macro has always been around and macro is still around today. Mm. Um, and Namibia in those days, Namibian Brewery, was it still a, a, a family-run business or what was the setup? Very, very much. Early, early days, we dealt with um, old man list, um, Mr. Carl Werner list, uh, awesome guy to deal with. Uh, he, he, if you were going a slightly left of center, he'd give you that devil stare and you'd quickly back off. You know, even though I would always push the envelope, <laughs> he gave me that stare. You know, I disappeared quickly. Yeah. Very quickly back to my side of the, of the line. Great guy to deal with. Him and his wife, um, they are both late, but awesome people. Awesome Namibians. You know, they, they really had a, they really had a, a thing for Namibia that they wanted to make the country a better place, not the company. Surely they wanted to make their company big and successful and, and sustainable. And, you know, Holger, the truth be told, um, it's, I think that, that Vintuk to this day is the only brand that stood up against the might of SAB mm. and survived and flourished. You know, no one else had managed it before that. And, 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 and that's what mattered. You know, you had the good old days of Dimitri Kharapopoulos in, in, um, in Joburg uh, with his, his tough love with his reps, but he ran a magnificent ship and he achieved, he punched way above his weight division, you know, and at the long end of a short day, we, we took on SAB, which is no easy feat. And kind of at the end, when the final bell rang, we a little bit like Rocky 20, you know, we were there still standing battered and bruised, but we had won a fight. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, that's awesome. And I mustn't also forget the characters like George Naidu with his Midmar liquors, and and it would be remiss of me not to mention Butch Vagat also. You know, um, if you understood and knew Butch, and Butch was a very very good retailer, he intimately understood the relationship between percentage and rands banked and turnover and uh, your proportionate turnover and turnover per meter. He fully understood that coming from a retail background. Great independent guys to deal with, you know. Those were the guys you could go in and after an hour's meeting, the guy would say, okay, I commit to take a truckload of beer, you know. Butch had a, also a massive destination store. And, and you know, um, years later when, when I was no longer involved in Butch's beer, you know, um, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but, but SAB phoned me up and said, Jesus, come and have a chat to us, you know. We'd love to buy you a cup of coffee and buy you a lunch. And, and, and 
we want to know how you managed to do all of it. Uh, and it was actually very interesting listening to their perspective from their side. You know, um, uh, you know, we had we, we we had a few of those actually, and um, the the first one arrived, and there was you know a whole lot of oaks there, and they were all like like high level oaks. I said, no, 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 I'm taking my I'm taking a takeaway, you know, and I'm going <laughs> sitting with you, Oaks. But you know, it was because we were entrepreneurially driven and not corporately governed. I suppose is the word I'm looking for. Is is so so we would typically have a have a strategy for the southern suburbs for for UCT and and the rugby clubs, and we'd have a different strategy for the northern suburbs for the Buda Belt and those type of rugby clubs or cricket clubs and and Stellenbosch was a completely different strategy again and, and, and but how does this how are they controlling this shit how are they you know yeah anyway a lot of fun those those were the days those were the days when you could sit with a George and I do and 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 send in I don't know how many rigs into his stores and and you would agree to a price and the price would stay you know and, and, and you'd sit with Butch or Mike Ivensky and what was agreed happened. You know, it, you didn't have to have twelve-page rebate confidential agreements and growth targets and you know everything else that and buying uh, gondola ends and buying salt facings and shame. Eventually, the reps became, I think, uh, auditors counting the salt. I'll never forget. Went into a, on a on a store visit and there was a guy and I watched this over ten minutes and eventually my curiosity got the better of me and I went to him and I said. I don't want to mention the company's name. And I went to him and I said, but what are you doing? He said, no, I've got to count all the shelf facings to, to achieve my KPIs and KPAs. I said, no, expand that. He said, well, if I lose a shelf facing there, but I gain two here, it's okay. But I lose one there and I lose one there, my KPAs fall in this outlet. <laughs> so I said, but when do you sell? When do you have to? No, no. So we've got planograms. And if there's so many shelf facings, then the sales will be this. Which is 100% right. If you can't see it, you can't buy it. But I, I just thought, wow, you know, how do you sell? How do you build a relationship, sell yourself, sell your brands? Gone, gone. You become little animated robots, you know. Can't it. So many shelf facings. Yeah. This is stock. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different world, eh? Yeah, very much. Did you also have draft in those days? Was it the full portfolio? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did, you know, <laughs> back in the days. We we had uh, uh, ice boxes. I don't know if you remember those things where you had a cold plate and you piled ice on it, you know. And and after about four years running my own company, I delisted my telephone number because I would get a call at quarter to twelve in the, in at night, and it was Martin Debolt who who had been sampling a tremendous amount of our products, phoning me to tell me the beer is not working. You know, I need to find what would happen as the beer flows through the cold plate. There's a gap that happens between the cold plate and the ice. It's like a bridge. The ice forms a bridge. So the ice is not in direct contact with the cold plate. And then you say to Martin, crunch the ice down. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Crunches the, oh, no, it's, it's working. Thanks very much. And in those days, I kind of worked from can't see to can't see, you know. I'd leave it in dark and come back in the dark. So that little bit of sleep that I had or the lots of sleep I had during the night was important, you know. Or someone would phone and say, the, the beer's not working. And you get it. It's a big client. You get in your car and you drive through and you find out the keg's empty. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then um, I learned tremendously from SAB. You know, I really did. I, I, I learned huge amounts from them. 
I, I, I respected them and feared them as well, make no mistake. Then they bought out the electronic coolers, you know, where you were electric, where, where you had the ice bank. And, and of course, now I had to explain this to Namibian Breeze that this is the route we had to go. And when they saw, <laughs> when they saw the price of these things, <laughs> man, I've never seen Oaks going to reverse gear quicker than, than, than that. Anyway, we, we went on, on and we did a few of our own. And then they saw, you know, the, the, the success of, of the new technology and then it was adapted. So draft was a very important part to us. You know, Holger, we all know that you, 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 you put for dough in the Oncon, you know, you build a brand and you build a brand loyalty. And uh, it, it going into, I will never forget singing, dancing Irish jigs when we took those ice plates out because they were, they were painful to work with. Yeah. They were not great, especially if you're pouring high volume, you know, you, that didn't work effectively. Yeah, I mean, I always found that when we started with Bavaria, I think SAB didn't hate it draft. And they actually changed yeah. to that little 12 and a half liter Keggy system, which was a complete yes. disaster. But it opened yes. up the market for us so we con could convert all the underbar fridges that had been pouring Castle Draft faithfully for, for 10 years, we could convert into Bavaria taps. And uh, I'm sure you also learned those tricks. Yeah, no, for sure. No, for sure. I, I, you, you remind me, I'd forgotten um, the era of the underbar fridge and, and the challenges with the underbar fridge that as the beer gets colder, it absorbs the CO2 more readily. Oh, and then the guy doesn't have a backup keg that's cold and yeah. then he puts, oh, man, yeah, draft, much about draft. And you don't want to loop in the line because the, and then you get the guy that's watching his costings very carefully and you come and service a tap. you back in those days you do what you have to do. It's servicing a tap. The guy, he's standing there with a mug and he's measuring all the mugs out. I don't want to mention names. <laughs> but there was one guy had like seven mugs of foam. And and he said to me, say a beer was at that stage 20 bucks. He said, you owe me 140 bucks. And like I stopped and I looked at him. I said, uh, what what for? He said, but there's seven mugs of beer you expect me to throw away. Now, you know, customer's always king, you know, but the king's not always right there. Now, you've got to explain to this very delicately. Well, let's wait for half an hour and we see how much beer we really have, we really are. And by the way, if you actually carefully weigh this keg, there's about 51 liters, another <laughs> urban myth. Forgive me. 50, 50 and a half liters or 51 liters of beer in there. <laughs> and kind of got away with it. I, I kind of got away with it like that. So, um, you know, the, <laughs> the little white lies we told. And, 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 you know, at the end of half an hour, there was maybe half a beer. And I said to the guy, what, do you, do you really want 10 rand? Uh, you know, standing with my hand in my pocket, you know, making out to pay. And uh, he said, no, 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 thanks for explaining that to me. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> and did, did you guys have to do a lot of events with the, with the uh, beer fests and stuff? Yeah, you know, Holger, we, we for, for again, getting back to the, the first couple of big ones we did was the, the Stellenbosch Marty Carnival, which was arranged by the German students. And they would have this traditional German um, get together at Fundestall, and it would be a Friday night and a Saturday, and then a through shopping on, mm. on, a, on a, a Sunday morning. Um, and after those three days, you know, um, I had to cut my liver in half and freeze the other half because it had grown so big. In fact, the doctor said to me I should start smoking to make room for my liver. 
it was uh, so we did we did those sort of uh, events, and then we started doing more and more and more events. And if you ever wanted the wind to blow in Cape Town, you must just let us put up a tent. That southeaster came at us with a vengeance, but we did lots of events. Olga, I I forget mm-hmm. how many over the years, but we did huge events. You know, we did we did the uh, we did Hamilton Sevens Rugby. We did uh, Maynard Carnivals again with the German Club of Cape Town. Erich was the guy's name. We sold over a weekend. I think our record was just under 300 kegs, 50 liter vintage draft. It was, you know, only that I could arrange uh, efficiency and, and, and everything. A great oak to deal with. Um, you know, it was either right or it wasn't. Um, and you know what? The sales were huge. I mean, think about that. We're going back, what? Sure. 35 years ago, 30 years ago to Maynardville. 300 kegs on a Friday and a Saturday and a Sunday afternoon. And then we had to be there Sunday afternoon to collect the empties and oh, break down the park because Monday morning it had to be a park again. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are massive, massive numbers. I mean, nobody will get those anymore. No, just not, just not anymore. No, yeah. no. Uh, Greg, and now uh, over the years, the brands that you've worked with, you, you've done obviously the, high, uh, the Vintage Range, um, I know you have a special place for Tafel. Um and then oh, been... then I think Sorry. Beck's and and Holston. What were the other brands that that crossed your floor? Well, I must tell you, um, um, Beck's was a great beer. Look, all the beers we handled, in my opinion, were great beers. Um, but I had a, I had a, a, I, I, I did have a very special spot for Tafel. I thought that it should be groomed to be the crown prince to take over from Vintuk because, you know, brands have a lifespan and, and, and you know, what, there's nothing wrong with grooming a crown prince. And at one stage in the Cape, in, in the Cape, Old Cape province through our depots, we were running about 77,000 hectolitre or 75,000 hectolitre of tafel alone, you know. And, and that, was, that was massive, you know. If, if you look today, I think Heineken has just announced that culling tafel, if I'm mm. not mistaken. So, you know, I'm very sad to see that happen. I, I remember the tafel that I drank when I started used to come from the Swak of Munt Brewery. Mm. You know, mm. um, and Mr. Emil Horschneider was the was the owner and MD of that brewery. Also, absolute scholar and a gentleman, great guy. Um, and, and in fact, the very first time I got there, they, they were still doing Hansa Pilsner, but they were only allowed to do it in Namibia. Also, great beer. And, and Holston, for me, um, um, Klaus von Müller was the marketing director of Holston. Awesome guy, a wonderful guy to deal with. I think in a lot of the ways that um, he took Nambrew out of, and I mean this respectfully, kind of out of the dark ages and introduced them to 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 electronic media and advertising. And, and in fact, it's not a good thing to say that, oh, look, I've saved a million rand in my marketing budget. It's rather I've blown the whole marketing budget, but look how much volume I've achieved by blowing the marketing budget. Therefore, I want to double my marketing budget to continue the sales trend. And I won't go into detail, but but those were actually words uttered at, at meetings. You know, I mean, I just said to where are we going to, you know? Um, so, so Klaasen Muller was was a kind of a shining light, you know, um, um, the pan on the Holston night protecting the purity. I don't know if you remember that ad mm. with the little Holston night fighting mm. all the rubbish that was going into beer and here's the purity. So yeah, that was for us, it was 
like a milestone to see one of the beers that we were selling actually on TV. You know, it was it was it was fantastic. You know, um, Chuck Miller also great guy. He he was a, a very good marketing guy. Understood strategy. He understood what was necessary. But but working in a system that you know you're working in a in a population of 1.6 million people and you are a god in that 1.6 million people coming down to south africa where you're not it was very difficult for him to i think uh bridge those those philosophical differences mm. um eventually we did get that dragonfly ad you know pure the dragonfly the pure beer and the pure beer society and that just reinforced and retrenched everything that was already happening in the market so yeah, yeah, and the rest, as they say, is history. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I have no idea where the, the where the hectolitre sits, but I'm sure it's well over a million, million and a half by now. Um, I'm not sure what what Heineken's intent is with it. It'll be interesting to watch, but I, I do see that that will be coming in as more of a, uh, a low prop brand to defend the crown prince, and that's smart strategy from Heineken. You know, you let everyone fight down below, and that's where the fight is happening, and you make sure that your your king is well looked after and its positioning maintains where it is. Yeah, it is sad to see all the delistings, and uh, people have been asking for Camelthorn. I know you were cl closely involved with the launch of Camelthorn. I don't know if that's been discontinued. Um, but certainly, Tafel, I think even in KZN, it made a nice, it made nice inroads. Yeah, look... Um, Holger, what they unfortunately did with Tafel was inevitable. They sold it too cheaply. Mm. I mean, you could buy uh, 24 by 500 ml cans of Tafel for 200 Rand. I mean, that's like, and, and Tafel is, was great beer. It's, it's really, a, it's, a, it's a thirsty beer. It's just, you know, it's a great beer to drink. It's a sessionable beer. It's got, it had everything going for it. And, but I think what they were doing is, is to, put it in a position where it didn't make profitable sense to continue with the brand. And in any way, you know, they, they now own everything and, and they've got uh, Vintage Lager to play that role and Vintage Draft. You know, uh, back in the day when we were handling the Vintage range, they were premium brands, you know, and, and, and people were prepared to spend the premium on the brand to, to buy the beer. You know, and that's a market perception that's created. But if you lower the price of that brand, you do also lower the the brand, um, uh, the brand integrity. You 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 lower the brand. Uh, if I was a marketing guy now, I'd come up with brand voltage and all that cut. But you know, it, you just lower the brand appeal, and and it, it's true that 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 uh, you need to price a premium at a certain price to maintain the premiumness. And we all know that the difference between a beer at a premium price and a beer at a non-premium price is is the brand equity. And if you keep lowering the price or you keep the price at a proprietary level price, guess what? It won't be a premium anymore and, and people won't buy it as a premium. Yeah. I was at uh, our local Liberty Liquors on, on Saturday, on Friday night, and I uh, asked them where, where the tafel was and they said there's no tafel and they said there's also no lion. So clearly those two were fighting a fight and if the one disappeared, there's no there's no use for the other one. Yeah, yeah, and and you know what? You're going to sell so many more hectolitre of a beer at a more profitable price, and and it makes sense. I understand it. I get it. Still, for me personally, very sad to see Tafel go. Hmm. 
Greg, let's talk a little bit about the beers that you currently import and maybe the the stories. I mean, my favorite is obviously the the Erdinger, but I also, I mean, I, I had a good session on on the the Bitburger at uh, Ziggy's in in Salt Rock the other day. Look, Erdinger sells in seventy, I think, seventy four countries globally. It's um, it's the biggest wheat beer in the world, or world's number one wheat beer. Um, it's not big in Munich because it falls just outside the Munich um, circle. Yeah. But it's big in Germany. Um, it's also, I mean, if you look at how some of the other competitors brew their beer, you know, Erdinger have this secondary fermentation in bottle, which is absolutely fascinating. Holger, you know, just before getting capped or crowned or whatever, they put in a little bit of wort with just the right amount of yeast. And then that they do a bottle fermentation for six weeks in those massive climate-controlled cellars that they have. And and really, honestly, that's what makes Erdinger that depth of flavor, the richness of that beer. Um, you can actually taste it when you open it. You know, um, another beer had a had a brilliant slogan. It's only expensive until you try it. And that's very true for Erdinger. You know, once you drink an Erdinger, you understand why it is. It's also my favorite beer, just by the way. Um, people tell me it's not sessionable. Well, shit, I've, I've never come across that. <laughs> Maybe I'm just a bad influence. Um but yeah, look, I mean, I suppose I've got uh, breweries or to thank that I like German beers. They are quality beers, you know, they are brewed right at Skaport and, and, and a lot of pride. I think um, a, a lot of pride goes into German beers, which I think maybe uh, the rest of the countries around the maybe don't have that same sense of pride that goes into those productions. I mean, I, I must tell you, uh, for me, it's a, whilst I say reading is my, my favorite beer, um, I mean, for me, if, if it's just, it's so difficult if there's an Erdinger on tap and a Bitburger on tap. It's so difficult for me to make a choice that uh, it, it actually almost comes down to what I'm eating. You know, <laughs> I, if I'm eating something, I'll go with a Bitburger. If I'm eating something, I'll go with the Erdinger. They're both great beers, you know, yeah. and, um, and and thank goodness they're very, very different. You know, one's a Pilsen and one's a Hefeweiss. So, yeah. And the Erdinger is still, it's still a family business. Yes, it's still owned by by Mr. Werner Brombach. I don't see that changing in, in, in the near future. I really don't. Awesome people to deal with, family-type owned brewery. I mean, it's it's a big business, make no mistake. You know, you say family and you think small. You know, not in this case. It's a, it's a big business. Awesome people to work with. Um, through COVID, they were, you know, they, oh, man, if I could have got to Mr. Brum, Brombach, I might have given him a kiss, but... In fact, all our suppliers were, were fantastic to work through with COVID. Um, you know, they all understood it. And I think it was a global thing. I think everyone helped everyone. I, I'm mm. no exception. I think mm. I got helped along with everyone else. So, yeah, it was, it was really nice. And, yeah, eating a very much a, a family business. Um, now, tell me about the, the, the Oktoberfest at, at the brewery at Oedinger. Because that's slightly different. I mean, it's the same sort of time. I've been to the Munich Fest a few times. Holger, it's called the um, Edinger, It's called the Herbs Fest. Okay. Okay. It's 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 like an Oktoberfest, except it's. Um, I, I want to put it this way: it's smaller and classier. Mm. Um, when I say smaller, fifteen thousand people in the tent. It's not small by any stretch of the imagination. Copious quantities of beer, similar menu, 
um, and, 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 and a smaller version of, of, of the Oktoberfest in München, you know. But surely the only brand on sale is the Erdinger. And then there is a little champagne den where if you're really feeling bad and you want to sh- make sure you die the next day, you go into after a whole night of beer. <laughs> and is it open to the public or is it for the trade? No, no, the Erdinger Herbfest is open for the public and, and everyone can go or anyone can go. And, and it's awesome. You know, it's, it's wonderful to sit in that environment where, you know, I think 99% of the people have had uh, more than an elegant sufficiency, but it's friendly. Gemütlichkeit, I think, is a great German beer, which you can explain better than I can. And, and, and if someone bumps into you, he's immediately apologetic. He's not trying to smash you on the head with a glass, you know, a la SA style. I'm going to stop going to those dives, I think. But yeah, no, awesome place. Uh, great, great festival. In fact, worth going to um, for a classier uh Oktoberfest, yeah. but it's end of. I think they do it first week of September. First, first week. I think they run it for like a week. Okay. Yeah, um, mm. early September. Yeah. We we went to the Oktoberfest in Munich because they ran the Oktoberfest Seven, so the Seven Aside Rugby Tournament for the first time in 2017, and that's the last time I went to Munich. Um, so we had the excuse of going to the rugby, uh, supporting the the Springboks and the German. And a uh, seven aside rugby team, and then obviously enjoying a few beers at the on the Wiesen. Oh, awesome, man. Al, I'm sorry, I must look out for that. Just give me a heads up next time that happens. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in, in your portfolio now, you've got Erdinger, you've got Paulana, Bitburger, yes, Bitburger, and we have Royal Dutch. Um, we, we, we're exploring some other options, Holger, which I can't go into now. Um, from a beer perspective, uh, we've had some very promising discussions. Um, but, you know, I've kind of learned my lessons now, you know, just because I like a beer and it drinks awesomely well, you know, it, it doesn't work. You know, you have to have a partnership with the brewery you're looking to bring on and, and you do a one-year, three-year kind of process with them and and, and, and you co-commit and you co-spend on it and and. You know, unless that happens, you know, there's no, there's no point. You know, there's no point. I don't own those brands. Why would I commit my heart and soul to it? Mm. Did that once and, and learned that lesson. <laughs> Greg, talk us through your the rest of your portfolio. Sure. So, so we handle a brand called Tomatin or Tomatin. They're the world's largest single malt distillery. And I don't want to go into detail, but a lot of the big brands out there have a portion of Tomatin malt in it. Um, so we're handling their legacy. Uh, unfortunately, that had a massive increase from supplier. We do the legacy, the 12-year-old, the 14-year-old, the 18-year-old, and as the skews up, you know, um, our biggest challenge is actually to get stock on time all the time. You know, unfortunately, we, we, we suck at that one. We haven't got it right. We've been out of stock too often. Uh, we're working hard to try and rectify it. And we've just been appointed officially about six months ago. Uh, the Kamiki range of, of whiskeys, Japanese whiskeys, um, hugely interesting how they make whiskey. I mean, you talk about German pride in their beer. Well, the Japanese take it to another level for their whiskeys. Um, we were up against some quite big companies for this uh, for this brand, um, and you know, hopefully 
we won't run out of stock of that thing because the biggest problem, you know, we used to do a bit of um, nicker with old Hector Macbeth, um, but the biggest problem was just being in stock all the time. You know, then stock was allocated, then they, they had, they didn't. Um, and Suntory are not interested in supplying this market directly, even though they have uh, bought their own company and they, they're doing their, their beers that they don't want to bring in there. So the nicker comes in kind of um, haphazardly at best. You know? So hopefully with the coming Q range, we, we won't need to do that. And, and, and we priced slightly better, I think, than the coming than the nicker range because you know, we're dealing directly with source, not through a um, whole lot of various people. Then we have a very interesting liqueur range. Um, the Caper, um, globally, global brand, globally awarded gold medals all over the place. And, and um, they've got a very, also a Dutch company, they've got a very interesting um, take on it. They, they sell a liter for about the same price as a local 750 mil. So it offers tremendous value for money. But they had a massive logistics uh, issue in as much as they couldn't get glass, they couldn't fill, they had liquid, but they had no bottle. So we've literally just landed the containers now, um, and it'll be going into market. And then we've got uh, a brand we've had for like 12 years, Uzo Batari. Um, Holger, we do nothing to it. We, we just put it on the price list, and yet every year it just, just ticks up, ticks up, ticks up. Um, it's, not, it's not a drink. I drink out of choice. Um, it's, it's, I suppose it's an acquired taste. I haven't acquired it yet. Um, and then we also do a, a beer called Royal Dutch, you know, from United Dutch Breweries. Very interesting company. They've got a plethora of brands. Um, and actually, it's a nice beer. We do the little 250 mil. Um, uh, it comes in at a reasonable price. And Macro are doing quite a good job for us. And your distribution now goes through liquor runners? Yeah, liquor runners handle all our walls and wheels now and and yeah i should have probably taken that call a while ago um and then you've you've got your teams in joburg and durban joburg and 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 cape town we have teams we have outsourced sales um if it's in the outlying areas well greg thanks for your time thanks for sharing your your decades of knowledge with with us and yeah i look forward to catching up with you when when i'm in cape town next time uh, absolutely. Let's have a cold something somewhere. And take care of yourself, Holger. Take care. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.